The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So today is the 28th, March 28th, and I've been giving a series of talks on the Three Refuges, which is Chapter 3 in Ajahn Sumedho's book that we're following as a, for people who want more of a reference or a background, a little bit more background. And the last two weeks I've talked generally about what that might mean, taking refuge, and also specifically about what it means to take Buddha as refuge or Dharma as refuge. And of course, for some of us, those are just words that have almost no meaning. But what we're looking for is uh, something in our experience to take refuge, something that's dependable. So let me just begin by reading what I've read from before, which is Ajahn Amaro. He's a British monk who is the co-abbot of a Buddhist monastery in Northern California. Abayagiri is the name of it. And uh, it's just a word, Pali word for fearless mountain is actually the translation of the monastery by Ukaya, um, up about uh, two, three hours north of San Francisco. <clears throat> so he's talking about the three refuges. He says, when the Buddha sees Dhamma, so the Buddha is the one who knows this quality of the mind that sees things as they are, without agendas, without interpretation, so it's the natural clarity of the mind, or the mind that's, in that moment at least, in a moment, is free of filters, of, of agendas and expectations that affects how we see or know experience. So when a mind is free of all that interpreting, and there's a direct, a more direct knowing, that's called the Buddha. So the Buddha knows then the way things are. That's the Dharma or Dhamma, knowing how it is. So a, a direct knowing of the breathing, of sound, of thought, free of what that means in terms of my life story, that's Dhamma. When the mind knows the Dhamma, the Buddha knows the Dhamma, what arises is Sangha. So the Sangha on an external level is the community of awakened practitioners. On an internal level, it is that quality of relationship which arises when the awakened heart sees the way things are. Taking refuge in Sangha is taking refuge in our capacity to act and speak harmoniously in a way which is virtuous, noble, and good. Putting your heart into that which is noble and pure in a complete way. Refuge in Sangha doesn't mean hanging out with the local Buddhist group. On an external level, it would be spending time with those who are awakened, the bright lights of the world. But on an internal level, hanging on to the Dhamma, onto Dhamma books, doesn't actually stop you from suffering. Hanging out with the local Buddhist group, or even hanging out with wise beings, doesn't stop you from suffering. But at that moment where the heart chooses to act out of purity, out of nobility, what comes forth is absolutely free from suffering. It is completely delightful, joyful, and dependable. So one of the things I've been talking about the last few weeks is how 
taking refuge in what's dependable, it's a it's an activity, it's a practice, because we'll start with something relatively superficial, and the idea is to go from the superficial to the real. And what I mean by real is something that is in this moment actually dependable. It's conducive of uh, freedom and ease, wisdom, and compassion. So, of course, we have to depend on what we know. That's, in a sense, where we start. You know, we've all had experience in our life, and some of that experience has been uh, useful. I mean, we've actually uh, cut through some of our habit energy and and can set it aside, momentarily at least, and we have some clarity. And in a way, this is the beginning of refuge, is just discerning what isn't and is a refuge. Like, for example, we might have spent a long time taking refuge in one distraction or another. You know, just think about the various distractions that we've been somewhat dependent on. You know, when we were kids, I remember as a kid, uh, I was I was pretty attached to Star Trek. I don't know when it started, but I was like about 10 or was it the late 60s it started? 67? Yeah, so I was about nine. And, uh, and I really wanted to see those episodes. And so, you know, it's like this is like my life sort of depends on that or depends on my friend being at school or being able to hang out or depends on, you know, all the things that we were dependent on. And over time, you know, we get to see, well, that's not really something to take refuge in. And then that just begs the question, well, what is dependable? And so this process has been going on for a long time for all of us, where we've been letting go of things that used to seem dependable, used to seem to be a real refuge for us. Think about how many relationships we've let go of, various habits we've let go of, various ideas about who we are that we've let go of fantasies about who will become, what we want to do in the world that we've let go of. I was talking to somebody the other day who's in there, I think in, like she's 37 years old or something like that. And I was saying, you know, I, I, I remember, I'm, I'm now 48, soon to be 49, and I remember somewhere in my 30s, like all those ideas about my life and, and realizing that a lot of doors have been shut. Like, I might have thought those are all possibilities. But somewhere in our 30s, we begin to realize there aren't those possibilities anymore. They're really done as possibilities for us. You know, I'm not going to become a, a you know, nationally international runner, which I, I used to think that that may be something I actually want to do. You know, become a really... Uh, nationally ranked runner. Not that I, I was realistic, but it was a thought. <laughs> or, you know, be an academic, you know, be a professor at a college. All the different things that, it, you know, occurred to me that I wanted to be when I grow up. And, you know, these things are still alive in us now. And we, we don't actually bring the light of day to them sometimes, where we say, well, no, that door has been shut. Actually, it's been shut for a long time. 
and then some of us settle down, we get married or have partners, and that's a that's another way of shutting doors. Well, okay, now now this is where my sexual energy goes. This is where my commitment is. That shuts a lot of doors, or should. <laughs> It has in my case. <laughs> and and really, one one of the things that distinguishes a, a human being that is still pursuing what we would call worldly refuges like wealth, lots of friends, lots of respect, lots of power, lots of nice possessions from somebody who's not uh, not depending on those things as much. So you maybe we call that someone who is uh, having developing a spiritual orientation. So just as a way of defining things, you know, we could have a more worldly orientation or a more spiritual orientation. And I'm defining spiritual orientation is that we at least understand the limitation of all these worldly, taking refuge in these worldly things, like money and health and uh, friends and respect and power and things like that, you know, which can be, on a worldly level, can be quite wholesome. I mean, wanting to have a lot of wholesome friends wholesome family life, that's that's a pretty wholesome refuge on a worldly level. We could say, you know, having a really good community, whether it's a typical family or some other kind of community of good friends, that that's a really good worldly uh, refuge. But it's still limited. So as a spiritual refuge, letting go of that means we're we're orienting toward freedom. And then what do we mean by freedom? Well, freedom from needing these things. That's the freedom. That's really what spiritual freedom is. It's free from the pulls of the world, like health, like youth, like money, power, intelligence even. These are all for us uh, we've all actually been conditioned to take these things as refuges. So we all begin as worldly beings, very much dependent on these things, beauty. And then uh, if we're fortunate, I think, this is my opinion, if we're fortunate, uh, we see these things are limited. Even if we're quite confident in the world relative to other beings and we're, we're, we've got good karma, good conditions that sort of allow us to get a lot of that stuff, those those uh, worldly things, even then we can see the limitations. In fact, in a way, it's even easier. You know, if we have some, you know, beauty and some intelligence and some success in the world, <clears throat> it's actually in some ways easier to see the limitations than if we don't, because then we're always wondering, well, if only I were more beautiful, if only I were healthier, if only I had more friends, if only I had more power, if only I had a better job. But we can learn from other people who have those things and still aren't happy. 
and still suffer. So we begin to turn toward freedom. And all we need to understand about freedom initially is it's freedom from needing those things. Like everybody in this room can imagine not being dependent on health because we know what it's like to be dependent on being a healthy, having a healthy body. How tight that desire to be healthy is. How averse we are to ill health. Cancer is in the news and even among our friends here at the center. Um, there's some, uh, some of the, one of the leaders in particular who has cancer and is working with that. And, uh, you know, just to I hear, you know, that, okay, now, whatever it is, seven, eight months later, there's, they've done a little look, and there it is again, you know, after the, key, or after the particular procedure that they did to remove what was there and, and some form of chemo, a different form of chemo that he had, and, and then whatever, how many months it's been, not that many, maybe less than six months, there it is again. And just to uh, notice, you know, how much we depend on our health. So to be free, like to be really comfortable and relaxed and open with the fact that this body is on its own trajectory and <clears throat> who knows, we don't know how it's going to unfold this life of this body. Not just in terms of internal processes, but external, you know. Something could fall on us. We could get hit by a car. So there is this freedom, but it, it really is a movement from what we're comfortable taking refuge in to seeing that there are limits there, and then we move. And that really begins, that's the beginning of our spiritual life. And we begin to see that this is a very lonely pursuit in a way. The Buddha made this point so strongly. There's a, a wonderful scene from the life of the Buddha where his chief disciple, um, sorry, Kutta had just died. This is a well-known section from the discourses of the Buddha. So the Buddha is uh, soon after his awakening, two uh, practitioners showed up, Moggallana and Sarikutta, who had a lot of skill, a lot of insight already. And after some time with the Buddha, their insight deepened and there became as strong or as deep as the Buddha. And they also had a lot of good teaching skills. So the Buddha depended on them a lot to help teach the monks and nuns and lay people over the decades that he taught. And then they were older than the Buddha. So both of those chief disciples died before the Buddha. And Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, uh, was really uh, a little bit overwhelmed with sadness when Sariputta died. And he said that, he, he explains to the Buddha after hearing about Sariputta's death, it was as if my body were drugged. I lost my bearings. Things weren't clear to me on hearing that Venerable Sariputta had, a, had passed away. And the Buddha explained to him, you know, how could it be that, uh, you know, he says, I have already taught you the state of growing different with regard to all things dear, dear and appealing. Right? So anything that's dear and appealing will become different than what it is. That's guaranteed, Ananda. That's what he's saying to him. 
the state of becoming separate, the state of becoming otherwise, what else is there to expect? It is impossible that one could forbid anything that's born, existent, fabricated, subject to disintegration from disintegrating. And then he goes on to say, and this is the passage that I wanted to, to read, Therefore, Ananda, each of you should remain with yourself as an island, yourself as your refuge, without anything else as a refuge. Remain with the Dhamma as an island, the Dhamma as your refuge, without anything else as a refuge. And how does a practitioner remain with his self, herself as an island, herself as her refuge, without anything else as a refuge? How does he remain without any... Uh, how does he remain with the Dhamma as an island, the Dhamma as his refuge, without anything else as a refuge? There is the case where a practitioner remains focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. And he goes on to say the same thing with feelings, mind, mental quality. So basically, being mindful of the mind and body, that's how somebody takes refuge in the self. So here the Buddha, when he says self, he's not talking about the ego, of course. Dhamma and self, he's making an important spiritual point here, that the self, the real self, is not different than Dhamma. So what does Dhamma mean again? The way it is. So if you want to know who you are, well, who we are is exactly what's being known in every moment. That's, that's the wise view of who we are. The deluded view of who we are, if I ask you who I am or who you are, if you answered, I'm so-and-so who was born such-and-such and has these likes and these dislikes, that's a story. And so that that's the answer on the level of sort of conventional reality, that we are our stories. And to some degree, we have shared stories. So your story about me somewhat approximates my story about me. And what the Buddha is saying here is that the self is Dhamma, and that's our refuge. So how it is, moment by moment, that's our refuge. And that's who we are. And don't let it become more complicated than that, bigger than that. So we can just, just get a taste of that refuge, like how simple existence would be if what we took refuge in is this present moment mind-body experience, being intimate with the five physical senses and the content images in the mind as it actually is presenting itself, as it actually is being known moment by moment, without elaborating, without spinning, without struggling, but just that, taking refuge in that, trusting that. And this is nice, because this corresponds a lot with our sitting meditation practice, doesn't it? I mean, our me meditation practice is really learning how to take refuge in. First, we just start with something simple like the breath. But that's not really our meditation practice. The breath is the beginning, so that we're not even dependent on the breath. We can take refuge, we can open, see clearly, be intimate with whatever's predominant in the moment. It might be a sound, it might be a disturbing memory, it might be a beautiful mind state, it might be an irritating sound from the person next to us blowing their nose, 
might be pain in the body, might be lightness and tingling and vibration in the body. It could be all kinds of different things. Whatever it is, it's Dhamma. It's the way it is. It's the self in the truest sense. It's how it is, this moment. So then, when we take refuge there, that allows the Sangha to arise. And that's really what I wanted to talk about tonight. What do we mean by Sangha? So, in Buddhist circles, this word's used a lot, just generally to refer to the community. So you might hear somebody say, you know, I just really like the Sangha at Common Ground. And they just mean the group of people. They're just using the word Sangha to mean the group of people. Technically, it also means and, and often refers to people who are enlightened or people who have deep insight. So when we say we're taking refuge in the Sangha, we don't mean we're taking refuge in somebody in the room who's really confused in that moment because that's not what we're taking refuge in. But there may be somebody in the room right now who has a lot of clarity, who's not caught up in the stories of their life or stories of who they think we are but it's just there in the moment. Now, that's the kind of person we want to take refuge in. Those are the people we want to be around. But ultimately, those people can't do much for us except remind us to practice. That's really what they do for us. So the real Sangha is what arises when the mind that knows knows the way things are. In other words, when we're practicing fully, correctly, then Sangha arises. What arises in terms of our actions or thoughts or words is Sangha, meaning um, our life unfolds in a really beautiful, wholesome way when we're in the position of the Buddha knowing Dhamma, when the mind is simply knowing things as they are, the pure mind simply knowing the way things are, then it's like there isn't a filter of self-centeredness operating. So the words, the thoughts, and actions that come out in that moment, at least, will be free of that self-centeredness. So what we say, what we think, what we do, won't be tinged by self-centered fear, self-centered neediness, self-centered craving, denial. So it has to be some other kind of uh, action, like compassion, or gratitude, or generosity, or patience or kindness, or wisdom. In Buddhism, we have these four Brahma-Baharas, are sometimes called divine abodes. And these are, uh, according to the Buddha, the only four emotions that are really worth cultivating. Kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it's a, the interesting thing about these four emotions is that they, they are naturally the emotions that are expressed in our personality when there's not self-centeredness. So it's not even that we literally cultivate them. It's more about finding our way back to them, back to that simple state of, of, uh, of a mind that knows, knowing the way things are. So when we're there, then what gets expressed in terms of our actions, is kindness, compassion, sympathetic or empathetic joy, and equanimity. And these beautiful qualities of emotions, they're not personal. It's not like I'm being kind 
to Doug because I love Doug. It's just that's what the heart is feeling kind to whatever's in front of it, whatever's being known right there. So Doug just happens to be there. And if something else came, if a dog came running by, there would be the heart would meet the dog in the same way, with kindness or compassion. And also with equanimity. The equanimity is saying really that it's impersonal. It's not about the particulars. And this is the this is how we can distinguish Sangha or how we can really be harmonious in the world. It's when it's not personal. That the goodness coming out of us, it isn't personal. It goes out in all directions equally. Now it doesn't mean we do the same thing to each person. Like if somebody's being really obnoxious on the bus, we're not going to treat that person or react or respond to that person in the same way we'd respond to our mother. But the kindness would be the same. The, the tenderness and responsivity would be the same. It's just that the situation demands a different response. So this is the great thing about uh, Sangha or this quality of heart learning, knowing how to be harmonious, it's that when the mind is in this pure place, so we're just seeing things as they are, then our response is really powerful and nimble. Because it's in a sense, there's no friction in the system at that point. Friction is when the mind is fixed, has a particular view or orientation, you know, which normally is about me and what I need to be safe or happy. I need to be recognized or I need to be loved. I need to get out of this dangerous situation. So when we're not, when the mind isn't caught in a self-centered view, then the mind's very nimble and it knows how to respond. And sure, sometimes the appropriate response, the compassionate response, is to run away from a dangerous situation. But it's not out of fear, it's out of compassion. It's not out of tightness. It's a natural, effortless response. This is the other quality of Sangha. So what we're taking refuge in is not trying to be generous, trying to be kind. We're taking refuge in a, a quality of the heart that's effortlessly good. It's like the generosity is effortless and natural. The compassion is effortless and natural. The kindness and equanimity is effortless and natural. That's really what we take refuge in. And sometimes we see it in other people. It's really beautiful to see. I've definitely seen this, especially in some people who've done a lot of practice, that amazing nimbleness in their mind where somebody comes up. Like sometimes um, some teachers I really respect, watching them answer questions from people, meditation teachers that I really respect. You know, and sometimes people ask questions and they're in a real hostile place. It probably has nothing to do with the teacher, but they're just maybe in a really difficult place in their life, and they're just angry. And so I'll see people ask questions from this place, and it's just like a keto, you know, how the teacher doesn't take it personally. They're not in that place. And so the mind knows just how to respond to the person, not how to sort of uh, like put them in their place, but just how in the right way to receive what they have to say and to respond in a way that they can hear it and 
take the next step toward freedom, whatever that might be for that individual. And to see a teacher respond differently to 10 or 20 different people, exactly where they're at. And sometimes I see this in parents, especially parents who have done a lot of spiritual practice. They just have this beautiful gift to respond to their child. And to me as an outsider, the child might seem really irritating. Like, you know, that child needs to be trained or put in their place or something like that. But just to see the parent being so patient and skillful and creative in how they respond to their child is just really great to see. And it doesn't mean that the person's done a lot of meditation practice. There are other ways to deepen our spiritual life than through meditation practice. It's just a really nice way to practice. And so this is what we mean by Sangha. We're really learning how to be responsive in the world. There's a famous Zen practitioner from China. In China, it wasn't called Zen, it was called Chan Buddhism. It was just a particular lineage that developed in China. Um, Buddhism was a big deal in China in the early uh, um, centuries. And um, a particular strand grew up called Chan Buddhism. And it was just a really, a, over and over again, and when you look at Buddhist history, over and over again there have been reformations where the tradition gets a little institutionalized, and then wise people realize it's gotten institutionalized, and it's a little dead, and they kind of break out of the mode. And that was what happened in China, and called it Chan, as I said. And so one of the Zen or Chan patriarchs has this great answer um, to the question, well, what is Buddhism? Well, what is the heart of Buddhist practice? And the answer was an appropriate response. And it's such a good answer. You can, if any of your friends ask you, what, what's this meditation stuff you do? You know, why are you doing it? And you could say, I practice in order to respond appropriately at every moment of my life. Because that's really what we're after. That's why we practice, is to, to respond appropriately in life. No matter what the particular condition, we want to respond appropriately to that particular condition, meaning with wisdom and compassion. But we don't want to pretend to be wise. That's not the appropriate response, or pretend to be compassionate. We want it to be a natural and effortless response. We want that wisdom and compassion, or that appropriate response, to arise effortlessly that it's not Mark being wise and compassionate. You know, it's not the ego. It's what arises when that self-centered orientation is gone. Then this is something we can check out for ourselves. Is that an appropriate response? Or at least in the direction of an appropriate response, moving closer to an appropriate response, a skillful response in life. And in the same way, we can see when the ego is very much involved, when the mind is quite caught up and there's a lot of fear, a lot of craving, a lot of denial going on, then let's look at our response or reactions in life and see if they're appropriate or wholesome or useful. And then we really begin to get the sense of what practice is. So again, in terms of refuges, these three refuges in a way aren't three different things. But what we're, we're describing our practice in three ways. And one of the things I said last week is taking refuge is an ongoing 
practice. It's like the refuge gets strengthened by taking refuge. We actually have to do something in order to deepen these refuges. So what do we do? Well, we cultivate a direct experience of Buddha, which is that clear, pure mind. It's a mind that's not disturbed by self-centeredness. That's Buddha. So in those moments where the mind is not disturbed by a lot of ego, a lot of self-centered thinking, then recognize that purity. We actually want to be mindful of that purity in the same way we want to be mindful when the mind is impure, full of self-centered thinking, self-centered greed, self-centered fear. It's really good to know that because then we want to know that's not a refuge. That just leads to unskillful behavior, which just creates more suffering for us and others. And when we see the pure mind, pure heart, we want to recognize, you know, you don't need to call it Buddha. You can call it whatever you want. But here we call it Buddha. You know, that's, we take refuge in Buddha, that clear, pure heart, mind, that's not caught up in self-centered thinking. And we want to recognize that it's spiritually beautiful or trustworthy or whatever you want to say, sacred, or I like to call it wholesome. It's really wholesome and trustworthy. And the same with Dhamma. Then when there are moments of that kind of clarity, then we see the world, the experience, as it is. Not in terms of my story. It's not being filtered or interpreted through my story of myself. But it's just seen directly. Sound is seen as sound. Tactile experience is seen as just sensation. Thoughts are just thoughts. Emotions are just emotions. There's a a beautiful, dispassionate clarity of experience, of conditions. That's Dhamma. Just like when things are really sticky, like we see or have some experience, and it's like very strongly either good or bad, or it doesn't, you know, or neither. When we're defining experience in terms of good or bad, that's the opposite of seeing things in terms of Dhamma. Like you may see me... And as you see me, you may see me as like really this pure, good person. And if you have that strong uh, identification with me as good, that's not seeing Dhamma. Or if you have the opposite, you know, just thinking I'm a fool up here, that's not Dhamma. Dhamma is just seeing this phenomena of sound and shape and color, you know, and memory, right, because some of you know me, so you've got some... You've got some baggage about me, who I am, who you think I am. That all of that, without putting it together, without it being sticky. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have an opinion. It just means there's no stickiness to the opinion. There's no attachment to whatever arises in terms of your thoughts about me or your actual experience of the voice or sight or smell. whatever your way of knowing, if it's free of any stickiness, that's Dhamma. If there's a lot of stickiness, like you really think this is who he is and you're sure of it, that's attachment, identification. And that's not seeing things as Dhamma. So we practice taking refuge, noticing when the mind is not seeing things as Dhamma, but is seeing things in terms of what it likes and doesn't like. And we just notice that. Oh, that's attachment. I really like this, or I really don't like this, or I really don't care about that. 
that same things in terms of Dhamma. And you know how that is. Like if you ever sit at like a place where there are a lot of people, like at a mall or something, um, or a park, and people are walking by, just notice how your mind needs to judge people as good or bad. I like how that person looks. I don't like how that person looks. I like who I think that person is. I don't like who I think that person is. You know, That person seems like somebody interesting to talk to. That person seems like somebody I'd never want to talk to. And it's a, that is exhausting, and that's not Dhamma. Dhamma is where the mind is not complicating its experience with interpretation. It's just letting the experience be very simply what it is. That's Dhamma. And so when the mind is pure, then what's being known is also not being stained by good or bad, by dualism, turning things into good or bad. And then the personality that manifests when the Buddha sees the Dhamma, the personality that manifests in those moments is a pure personality, meaning that's where there's that effortless compassion and wisdom, or those four emotions, you know, kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. But there isn't anybody trying to be good. It's just what's left when the mind is seeing things clearly. And this is what we take refuge in. And this is what we can sometimes see in others when they're in this place. And we can and we can either make the mistake of sort of fixating on them, oh, they're so good, I'm so bad, or seeing those people in those moments when they're uh, living in a really beautiful way, manifesting wisdom, then it can inspire us to live, to practice, so that we can manifest that kind of clarity and compassion in our lives. The whole idea is, of course, to bring the practice home here and not to externalize it. So this is an important point in Buddhism that refuge is not about something external, even though we have statues, even though we have rituals, you know, like sitting meditation or some people bow. In Buddhist tradition, there's a lot of bowing. We don't do as much of it here, but you certainly can. A lot of people do around the world in their various Buddhist practices. But no matter how complicated or... Um, elaborate your external form is, the point is the refuge is here. It's always here in the heart or in the here and now. It's never about a teacher, a tradition, an object. It's not about those things or even a set of teachings. And the Buddha made this point over and over again in the most famous way is when he talked about the raft. And so even, like even in that, in that talk he gave to Ananda about Sariputta dying, he said, uh, it's like a big branch has fallen off of a really strong tree. There's a really healthy big tree, big oak tree, right? And a branch is falling off, falling off. That's Sariputta. He died. That branch is gone. The tree is fine. And, he, and the Buddha said to Ananda, do you think because Sariputta died that virtue has somehow disappeared from the face of the earth or calmness, you know, concentration has disappeared or wisdom has disappeared just because somebody died? 
did they take all those noble qualities, those good qualities with them when they died? Of course not. They're there. They're still there in your heart. It's not about seeing them in Sariputta. You're missing the point if you think it's because of him. Now, of course, it helps to have wise people around us. There's no doubt about that. But it only helps because they tend to point us back toward our own experience, our own heart. Any teacher or any tradition that makes you dependent on them probably isn't so useful. But we have to appreciate that. I was reading this article by Trumpa Rinpoche, a controversial Tibetan teacher who taught in the 60s and 70s. I'm not sure when he died, maybe the early 80s or late 70s. But uh, he has this um, article on uh, the decision to become a Buddhist, which is quite interesting. And uh, he just talks about the loneliness involved in the spiritual path, that we really need to depend on our own resources. That just because the Buddha had his awakening or all those wise practitioners, monks and nuns and lay people have had their awakening over the centuries, doesn't really do a lot for us. Except the only thing of value in that is that they've given us a roadmap or a roadmap has been passed down so we're not starting from scratch. We're, we're sort of given this internal roadmap, like what to pay attention to. For example, pay attention to self-centered thinking. See if it's skillful or not. If it's not skillful, practice abandoning it, abandoning the attachment, identification with it. So we're given a roadmap, and we're, we've got their stories of their lives. So we know that it's possible for human beings, at least... According to the stories, it's possible for human beings. And then if we're fortunate, we might even have some wise friends who are further along the path than we are, and we can look at them. And we can see if actually their life, at least in certain moments, is described by an appropriate response. Just like we can see people whose life are definitely not described by appropriate responses. And we can really see, well, that's not the direction I want to go. And yes, this seems to be the direction I want to go. So what do they do? What map have they followed? Let me ask. So on that level, we use a center like this and people who practice here, and people who teach here. But all the work is, all the insight is something that this heart, this mind has to have for itself. So I'll leave it here so we have some time to talk about refuge together. Any thoughts that you have, experiences from your own practice when refuge became clear for you or doubts or confusion you have? So what comes to mind about refuge? Feel free to speak practically, you know, just in your own life, what have you taken refuge in? How has that worked for you? refuge in my imagination and that was extremely sustaining for many decades but at a certain point you sort of want reality you know or it becomes at least for me I guess I got to a point 
or I could handle reality or something. So that started to, to slowly come in. Can you hear her in the back? Yeah. And, um, and now I'm not really sure what I take refuge in. I mean, I come here. At some level, I take refuge in, you know, the Dharma and the Sangha. Although they are more aspirations than actuality. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you were talking at one point, I thought about the earth, you know, taking refuge in the earth, just because contact with the earth, especially this past week, I, I raked leaves off my garden beds for about two minutes before I had to go do something else. And that, it changed my life, mm-hmm. you know, just doing that. And smelling the smells and just feeling the sensations of you know, moving with the, the hummus or humus, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <not> hummus. <laughs> but uh, it's a very interesting question. I think it's going to take me a long time to really understand what taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha mean. I know that I was sort of in the Trungpa circles for a while, and there was never any stability. That's the kind of teacher he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was exciting, but it certainly wasn't something to take refuge in for me. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've moved elsewhere, but But you, you could even examine that two-minute experience of raking out your garden, because now you said, well, maybe it's the earth, but maybe what you could reflect on is the quality of your mind in those two minutes. Like, what was it about the quality of your mind in those two minutes that made it trustworthy or dependable? Because you might find a more... Um, experiential definition of Buddha Dharma Sangha right in that moment, right in those moments of being there raking. Because there there might have been a, a certain purity in the mind, that mind that just because that was such a pleasant experience, the mind tends not always, but can tends towards purity when it's content. Right? So if there's some contentment, the mind's not pushing and pulling in that moment. So it it tends towards purity. And then when the mind's pure, you just start seeing the earth in a new way. You know, it's like, it is amazing when it's when our experience isn't being filtered through our story that I know this earth, I've seen these leaves before, you know, this is nothing new. So when we're not, when it's not being filtered through those, then it's very vivid and alive. Any experiences, even going to the toilet can be vivid and alive when we're free of our interpretation of it. So, and then maybe your heart was just open. You know, there was a quality of gratitude. Well, gratitude is just sangha. It's sort of, it's a wholesome emotion that arose because the Buddha saw the Dhamma. So, you know, it's just a matter, and throw out the language if it doesn't work for you. You know, find different words to describe that quality of freedom that arises when we're free from a worldly way of being in a moment. And just to notice that freedom from being worldly in those moments that we're not caught up in our conventional worldly ways. Other examples or questions people have? Yeah, I forgot your name. Lisa. 
Lisa, thanks. So that what one like I have those things too, you know, worrying for me more than planning, although it's related to planning. And then because it's got so much momentum, what I can do is I can notice that pattern as not a refuge because I actually see that spinning with worrying that it, it doesn't it isn't dependable. It just leads to more complications. I kind of mess things up because of that tendency to keep going back there. And that's how we undermine that habit. We actually have to see viscerally, or feel, I should say, viscerally how unproductive it is, like how it leads to stress and more confusion and more suffering. And the more we see it, it undermines it. And then we'll be le- it will kind of, uh, will naturally move toward what is not that, which is what is will end up being, you know, uh, a, a more authentic refuge. So even if you're not clear what we mean by refuge, just doing the process, engaging the process of undermining what's not a refuge will naturally lead toward what is a refuge. In fact, it's good to have a healthy don't-know mind about what the refuge is. Because the more we imagine it, the more it affects what we're aiming toward. It's never what we're aiming toward. So in a way, we stumble upon the true refuge by undermining what's not a refuge. And sometimes by reflecting, like Maria gave an example, and we can reflect like, yeah, that was really a really uh, beautiful or free moment or moments that I had today. And then we can reflect back about, like, how was the mind? What was the mind like in those moments? And then, in hindsight, we can kind of get a sense of what's trustworthy, what's a refuge, when we look back. And then we can put some language to it that will help us maybe um, remind ourselves of that possibility at other times in our life. Like now, um, the word Dhamma means something to me experientially. So when I bring that concept to mind, it reminds me to drop my stories, my interpretations, and just to be open with what's going on. It's just Dhamma. It's just how it is. That's really useful for me. But it's taken some time, like reflecting on experience that has made it useful as a concept. Other thoughts people have? Mm-hmm. Adam? It's helpful for me, kind of going off something you said earlier in the thought. Um, it's helpful to think back to all the times that I got exactly what I wanted or like getting into school or something like that. I remember, I mean, just there's been countless times in my life where, I mean, I got exactly what I thought would really make the difference and, and it never does. And that I, and I even have right now, I have, I have things in my life that when I was 16 or 14, I thought if I could just have these few things, I'd be, I'd, I'd have my worries and my troubles would be way over, and they never are. <laughs> and it's, so it's helpful to be able to, I mean, 
because right now I'm always still caught up in it. I, I have this just short, seemingly attainable list of a few things that if they fall into place, then this world should be very, very livable and relatively happy and it become a refuge, kind of a thing. Yeah. Except, I mean, if I reflect, I mean, I, I know better. I, like, theoretically, I know better. <laughs> yet I still experience the, well, probably, probably right around the corner. <laughs> Happiness thing. I mean, more than likely. Yeah. Just a few days away. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing we don't catch that, you know. That, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Anna. We have time for one more thought, a comment, if somebody has some thoughts to share with the group. Yeah. Mark? I was really struck by what Maria said. And, and uh, it's kind of a question as much as a thought, but um, is that... Your talks very, you know, stressed um, how it's very internal um, taking refuge, and yet there are external things one can do, like putting one's feet both on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are these really simple things, um, straightening up when you're doing meditation. Um, I mean, they seem mechanical, but they're deep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's actually an excellent thing to point out. So it's like, so as we begin to understand that there actually is a refuge, then the other thing that comes to mind is, well, what supports taking refuge? Like, it's a lot easier to take, to, to directly, experientially take refuge if you're here than if you were at a bar somewhere. Or raking leaves as opposed to, you know, driving in traffic. Now, you can still take refuge driving in traffic, you know, really open in a deep way driving traffic. But it's a little bit easier when you're doing something you really love doing, as I was saying. So we just begin to understand that as a practice, in order to practice being free, we have to understand the conditions that make it more likely. And that's really what meditation practice is. In a sense, the definition of meditation practice is is to create a ritual that have supportive conditions for freedom, for moments of freedom. That's what sitting practice is all about. It's what people have found over the centuries supports moments of freedom so we can actually notice them. And that doesn't mean they're often, but they're more likely there than probably other situations. And if you're not finding that true, then you might reflect on what kind of conditions your meditation practice happens in. And maybe you can tweak it. Maybe talk to somebody about your practice because maybe there's a way to do something in your your formal sitting practice that makes it more conducive to moments of purity and moments of trust and moments of seeing things as they are and moments of manifesting real love or real compassion. Because that's the point. We want to see that because when we see that we're inspired. Like, my God, there actually is a refuge. Life has meaning. You know, it's just not what I thought the meaning was. But there is meaning. There's actually something to cultivate here. Thanks for bringing that up, Doug. Why don't we leave it here, take a couple breaths, a few more. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.